Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, welcome to Unsheathed, episode number 73. I'm E-Fox Kyle Gold. And I'm Flesh and Blood Cam Hirosaki. We're talking to you together via the magic of the interwebs and recording equipment here in our uh, discreet mountain location. It's been kind of a light week as far as news, but um, Kit and I have booked tickets for the ATL, <laughs> as they call it. Um, they being everyone who does not live in the area of Atlanta. And uh, we'll be out there for FWA. We're pleased to report that. And very excited about it. It'll be our first time at uh, at this convention, which we've heard great things about, although many of the great things that we heard involved them being in the same building as a Trader Vix, which is no longer the case. However, Fuzzwolf says that we're only like half a mile from the Trader Vix, and so as long as we can hire an armed bodyguard to walk us from the hotel, we should be fine. <laughs> um, Fuzzwolf says he loves downtown Atlanta, but kind of in the same way you, you know, love your minus 20 degree city when you're standing inside looking out at it and don't have to actually love, go outside love, and walk in I it. love downtown Atlanta because it lets me practice my, you know, black belt karate skills that I spent years learning. My army camouflage skills. Um, but, as they say, you don't necessarily have to be faster than the muggers. You just have to be faster than the slowest person in your party. So, There you go. Trip the ones with the stubby legs. Exactly. But sadly, our otter friend will not be joining us in Atlanta. No, sadly. I've only ever been to the airport in Atlanta anyway. Um, we're, we're looking forward to, uh, what, what do they have in Atlanta, Kit? Peach pie? Pecan pie? All kinds of southern pies. And uh, we've, been, we've been warned that we may be inducted into the Mysteries of Grits. Well, mysteries I, to Kit. I do like grits. I had myself I like some good, last, good grits. The last time I had grits was last year in Dallas. That, that's in the South. Uh, Texas ain't really the South. Sure it is. No, Texas is Texas. Yeah, okay. The South kind of goes from Louisiana up to North Carolina. Can I, considering where I'm originally from, Texas is the South, but yeah, okay. I'll give you the Texas is Texas. Well, that's kind of how I like to, you know, people in Atlanta, everybody north of uh, Washington, D.C. is a Yankee. And we're like, no, those are the guys in the blue and white hats who radiate evil. Uh, why, why did you have to Yay, fans there? in New York. <laughs> Nothing good is happening in sports right now except for basketball. Nothing's really happening in sports. Well, hockey's going on. Hockey's going on, too, but it, well, it's going okay. San Jose's doing yeah. actually kind of well, I thought. Yeah, but like everyone's doing well is the problem. That's kind of weird. I know. Doesn't someone have to be doing bad? Yeah, but like when you're playing people like outside your division and stuff. It's, oh, okay. You know. So like the, the whole Pacific Conferences or Pacific Division or whatever. I don't remember what the names are for hockey. But they're all doing well? Um, I, you know, I... I last looked like two weeks ago, yeah. and they play hockey so frequently that there's been a ton of games since then. What are you? No, I'm 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 just cracking up because 
not only are, are we kind of devolving into like, hey, it's sportscast again, but we're really bad at it. We're talking about a sport and neither of us really knows what's going on in it. <laughs> Although I did check the uh, the NBA standings the other day and saw that the Kings are in fact last place for the Western Conference. So whatever oh, evil spirit, whatever evil spirit, like compelled me to pick the Kings as one of the two teams to like make it like all the way. I'm just like. Wow, what was in my wine that day? Yeah, I don't know. Boston still has a good shot at it. Chicago's still doing well. Yep, and and the Heat. And the Heat. And uh, Surprise. Oklahoma City, I think, is okay, although they're not doing as well as I thought they were no. going to be. I really, I made my picks and on And guess the- who drops a dead last without, uh, yeah. without be- LeBron himself? Uh, yeah. That was a sad story. Yeah. It's actually, sports, I often find, provides... Um, instructive stories for just regular life, which is one reason I really like sports is because it's kind of like real life without all the consequences. <laughs> like, okay, you're, you know, you're on a Cavaliers team that lost 26 games in a row, but they all still have jobs. Yeah. And they may not after the season, but they're still, I mean, most of those guys are going to go on. Nobody ever, well, it's very rare that you do something like go on a record losing streak and then never play again. Yeah. Whereas you could easily like screw something up big time at your job and that would be it. Yeah. And even if they did lose their job, it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to go home and sit on my several million dollars and just hope it lasts. Right. Well, yeah. And the whole professional athletes being incautious with their money is a whole other subject, which isn't really relevant. But um, no, but the interesting thing about the, that Cavalier thing is that, it really that streak all started when LeBron came back to play them in Cleveland. Like they were really hyped for that game, and they thought they had a good chance to win. And the game and, was kind of over by yeah, halftime. Yeah, and and then no. <laughs> and uh, yeah, since since then that was in uh, November. Was it? Maybe it was December. The whole holiday season is a big blur to me. But uh, yeah, since then they've won two games, uh, and they've lost thirty. Five that's, or thirty-six or something. Sad. That's like sad, otter sad. Yes, that's like starting one of your stories. Sad. I've had many people after episode seventy or whatever, like, get in touch with me about how, like, I think otters have cute ears. I would. They do. Now I'm just imagining your story where, like, the foxes, or the fox or the otter, or say the otter's going for his ex-boyfriend and he's like i'm gonna give him such a good blowjob he's gonna be so mad he dumped me and then it like goes bad and then he can't have good sex and he has like 26 straight (laughs) dates where he can't perform properly wow (laughs) maybe i should write that story giving me ideas you're giving me terrible terrible ideas i know but isn't it fun (laughs) yes And you could call him Cleveland, and it could be the Cleveland show. <laughs> oh, God, no. I refuse to further entertain this line of thought. Don't be so cavalier about it. Oh! <laughs> You're fired. You're off my show. Oh. And I can tell you're proud of yourself for that, too. I'll take the heat. It's... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
Ah, Cam, Cam's speechless now. He's like all, like, he's turning all otter red, and his little webby paws are just like making fists. And like my eyes won't even like raise above the, my brow. I'm just like he almost came across the mountain bunker at me. <laughs> well, no, I'm not that excited now. At me, not to me. Oh yeah. Um. So, kid has uh. In in more serious topics. Kit has called some headlines from the uh, news publishing. Uh, I've partially documented my struggles to get my ebooks into a Borders store, um, partly pushed by a fan, which I much appreciate. He said that once they're in the Borders store, he'd love to recommend them and so on. And so I've been um, working with Borders, uh, this Canadian company called Kobo, who also power many other stores and they have their own e-reader right. business and all that but borders contracted with them to do the border store um and after a lot of struggle uh i will i will just say that from a publishing perspective there's a reason that amazon and barnes and noble are being successful um i got the books up there and they still have not appeared in the border store but we did hear thanks to Kit, that um, Borders might be looking to declare bankruptcy and that they are potentially planning to close about a third of their stores. And so I hope my fan out there still has a job. But, you know, when corporations declare bankruptcy, though, it's not like they go away. No, but when they close a third of a store, yeah. it does go away. No, that's true. Um, which is kind of sad, but... Um, we have a, it's actually borders are all of the, the big bookstores around us are mostly borders. Yeah. I think Kit once gave me a Barnes and Noble card and I had to go like half an hour out of my way up the peninsula to find a Barnes and Noble that would, that would take it. Yeah. I, uh, got a Barnes and Noble gift certificate from my sister-in-law and ended up just needing to use it online. Mm. I used it to buy Star Wars memorabilia. Oh, I remember that one too. Yeah. It's awesome. I brought it over and showed it to them. They're like, you were the biggest nerd ever. And I'm like, I know. This little rudder tail was swishing back and forth. Oh, it God. So like, adorable. you would not believe. Um, but speaking of ebooks, uh, there was an article that talks about, and I think I mentioned this person before. Um, she's self publishing, she writes like young adult paranormal romance. Yeah, you did mention her. And she's selling like hundreds of thousands of books a month. And she's selling them really cheap. Which is a model I've not embraced, but she's selling her books for like ninety nine cents or two ninety nine, and I think if you had a shorter book, I mean, my books are pretty long. Yeah, my books are probably double the length of Paranormal Romance. Yeah, I wouldn't undercut yourself, but um, but yeah, they're they're obviously real popular, and I think for for kind of a mid level book like that, five dollars is a good price point because five dollars. Yeah. I know when I'm shopping. I'm kind of like five dollars. Yeah, that's nothing. Five dollars, I'll spend that. Um, ten is kind of a little more like you know. If I want it, I'll pay ten bucks for it. But five dollars is I'll try it out, and if I don't like it, then you know, no harm done. Yeah, because like you know, like five dollars is like you know, a cup of coffee and a pastry. Ten dollars is like lunch. Well, it's lunch in San Francisco. Wow. And it's lunch in San Francisco if you don't get a drink. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but apparently 
and I think I mentioned this, I might have mentioned this on the previous show too, but um, like about a third of Amazon's top 100 Kindle titles are self-published or independent publishers or small press. Are they press. really? Yeah. That is interesting. I did not know that. So that's kind of cool. And it's it's really an indication, I think, of the direction that the market is going. There's definitely some specific niches that are more suited to ebooks, but what I think is happening is, and those are like romance, mm-hmm. um, and more specifically, kind of more adult titles. I think one of the reasons my books do well in uh, e-format is because they're books that a lot of people don't want to be seen reading in public. And more than one person has said, I love the fact that I can read your books on the Kindle and in, you know, my uncle's living room during Christmas and nobody knows what I'm reading. Yeah, but even like the covers of your books, like nothing about like the cover screams like this is gay animal porn. Like, well, no, but it is furry. And yeah, but it's like I'm reading a book about animal people. People just, people just, a lot of a lot of people don't want to answer questions about furry, much less gay furry. I mean, it's unusual enough that people ask questions about it, and then it would lead to. It's not just a book about animal people. If you have to start talking about it, then they'll ask to read the back, and then they'll see the adult romance on the front, and people just don't want to get into that. Right. As Kit points out, um, you don't just pick up somebody's Kindle and like, hey, let me see what you got on your Kindle. But if it's just a book lying around, you'd pick it up and flip through it. What's a knot? (laughs) What's a sheath? Um... But in addition to that, um, one of the last articles here is uh, e-readers are catching on with the with younger kids, and I think that surprises it's, me. It's something where um, the uh, the publishers are seeing a jump in young adult ebooks, and it actually looks like this Christmas, uh, Kindles and Nooks were popular Christmas presents from parents to kids, and I can kind of see that because yeah, that's true. Kids As, um, do like their gadgetry. One of, well, kids love gadgets, and parents want their kids to read. And so here's a gadget that basically all they can use it for <laughs> is reading. We're going to trick you into reading by making it fun. Well, at the final <laughs> quote here is uh, a woman saying, there's something I'm not sure is entirely replaceable about having a stack of inviting books just waiting for your kids to grab. But I'm an avid believer that you need to find what excites your child about reading, so I'm all for it. Yeah, that's true. I still have not read an ebook myself. I've never actually like just like sat and read one. Um, I've I've bought a, I bought one on the Kindle. I bought one from um, one of the authors that I follow online that I learned about through the Rainbow Awards uh, a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and her book's gotten lots of great reviews. And she writes about historical fiction, which I'm sort of in the middle of doing stuff myself. So I picked up one of her books on my Kindle. Um, but Sort of in in line with this e-readers catching younger audiences and all that, um, I just want to reiterate, if you're under 18 and you're reading my books and you want to write me a letter, do not tell me your age. <laughs> yeah. It, or if you're writing into Unsheathed or anything like that, I mean, I know Notcast goes through this a lot, it just... If you're under 18, you should not be reading the stuff anyway, but I know I can't stop kids from doing that. I mean, I, we all looked at 
dirty magazines and stuff when we were underage so yeah but i would go up to the woods where nobody would risk me looking at them you know right <laughs> are you going up into the woods to read your copy of all and also you wouldn't write to the editor of the magazine saying hey i'm 16 and i love that picture of the model um but yeah don't 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 tell us your age and stay in school <laughs> I, I, I don't smoke. What other advice do we have for kids? I was just thinking. Like, don't even, sleep with someone just to make them like you because it doesn't work. I was just thinking, like, in retrospect, it's like, wow, like, even when I was, like, a horny teenager sneaking out to, like, the woods to look at, like, some old, like, copy of Hustler that somebody found in a ditch, it's just like, even then I thought girl parts looked gross. So, like, I'm surprised it took me so long to figure things out. I just remember turning 18 and well, a bunch of my friends were like, we're going to rent some porn now because we can. And uh, that first one was like awesome. And then it just went downhill really fast from there. Did I, ever, I, I must have mentioned on the show that I discovered that the best way to watch porn is to watch it like on rewind. <laughs> Watching porn backwards is hilarious. Oh, no. Especially the cum shots. I will say that... The, um, the adult version of the Canterbury Tales was one of the more entertaining porn movies I ever saw. They did include a lot of very amusing bits that were not overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, there was it. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I, I'm sure one of our listeners will write in, but I think it was the. It wasn't the Miller's Tale, but it was a tale about a Miller. Okay. And his wife and daughter and two students come to stay at the mill, and they all like the the old Miller's sort of oblivious, and the two students end up having sex with his wife and daughter but they'll have dinner together first and the miller's just kind of stuffing his face and the two students are sitting across from the wife and daughter and the wife and daughter keep taking these sausages and licking sausages and carrots and then the students like eat an orange and <laughs> wow it was really amazingly funny i also had i think the first interracial sex i ever saw on screen really yeah now I'm like picturing like doing like a furry parody of that where like you're at a table where he picks up like the bad dragon like griffin dildo or something. <laughs> these these are amusing sausage molds you've been using. Uh what's the worst written? Intentionally bad or like we wrote it to go really poorly, like the sex went really awkwardly, or we. I was gonna say there, there is the there is the dinner conversation in Deck the Howls, yeah, <laughs> which has the tossing salad line, yes, which does kind of read like a stupid teenager trying to get a rise out of his friend. It's like I wrote a sex scene where somebody like falls off the bed, like while trying to mount his boyfriend. <laughs> I. I didn't actually write the sex scene, but I wrote somebody talking about a sexual encounter where the other party fell asleep in the middle of it. You haven't seen that yet. Uh, that happened to one of my friends, though. Oh, really? She was very angry. <laughs> no, no, no. Her boyfriend fell asleep. Wow. Like mid-sex. She was not pleased. No, I guess not. I don't think he was drunk, no. Well, hey, talking about falling asleep mid-sex, let's read a letter from Candrel. Yeah. 
I don't know what that means. <laughs> Awkward segue. Uh, we didn't actually figure out who was going to read what. Do you want to read Kendall's letter? Sure. All right, go for Good it. Good evening again, Sheathers. Sorry Kendall. for the time it's been since I last wrote. Sorry for the time it's been since we last read. <laughs> I've been involved in a lengthy and unfortunately offline house move, and have only just recently returned to the realm of the glorious internet. I have sincerely missed your weekly voices in my ear, since that's about as often as we read your letters. In the meantime, I've had little else to occupy my time with than rereading my old favorite novels of mine and attempting to imitate some of my favorite qualities of those authors whose work I idolize. In my search for that perfect author's voice, I finally started to pick apart the style of those authors uh, to see the clockwork behind their imaginations. It's a highly useful activity. I've now identified some of the reasons why my favorite novels work so well. This has highlighted a bit of a problem, though. I find that after I've deconstructed a novel, it slowly begins to lose its magic. I guess it's somewhat like those documentaries where famous magicians will pick apart their own act and show the smoke and mirrors behind the tricks. While I can now appreciate many of those ingredients that made the stories wonderful in greater detail, they no longer have the same mystique for me that they once had. Sadly, I find some part of me is mourning that loss. Do you find the same problems with deconstructing the work of your favorite authors? In fact, do you have any stories that you refuse to think of in that light in the interest of never reading the magic for yourselves? Candrel, the fox who clearly needs to spend more time thinking of amusing alliterations of a sexual nature. Um, pretty much anything I read from the ages of 10 to 18 or 19 um, sort of falls under that category. There's a few that survive, uh, which... I've occasionally recommended to people uh, the Susan Cooper's Dark as Rising series. Right. It does stand the test of time. Yes. Um, I will second that. But there were a whole lot of, I don't want to say generic, but kind of mainstream fantasy and science fiction that I enjoyed at the time. And kind of in retrospect, I think I enjoyed them more for the ideas. And the storytelling now would probably drive me a little bit crazy. Yeah, that's probably true. But I think that there's a certain bit of something in this where it's like if you ever had to do like a dissertation on a certain like work of literature, I guarantee you by the time you reach the end of that work, like you're going to hate the piece yeah. that you were working on just because like you've just like slaved over it for so long. You know, it's like living with another human being. No. <laughs> Don't listen to, to Cam Hirasaki kids. Uh I think it's I think if it's a really well done work then for me it doesn't really lose the magic it's no. just the magic takes on a different tone I'm not entranced so much necessarily by the story of the characters but I'm entranced by the artistry of the craft um that's that's kind of what I go through with uh, with David Mitchell now I was going to say yeah uh, although I think he's good enough that I'm sort of still in I fall on both sides with that yeah where the work just is so good that I can appreciate it as a writer and still be caught up in it yeah I would agree with that um I'm trying to think it, it, mostly it's kind of like the the kind of science fiction and fantasy you read in high school yeah probably I know there were books that I really enjoyed and Mostly, I haven't reread them because I haven't had the time. Mm -hmm. I have a stack of, I think I, the number keeps changing, but I think it's close on to 20 books now sitting on my table that I don't have time to read. Although I will say, I just finished this weekend um, 
the book My Life is an Experiment by A.J. Jacobs, which was given to me by our listener from Southern California at the live show, uh, DJ, right. who gave me two more books at uh, FurCon, and uh, enjoyed that immensely. Uh, it's really, he's kind of like a, how shall I say this? It's, it. you know how like you had biology courses and you had a classroom and then a practical mm-hmm. class? He's kind of like the practical class for a Malcolm Gladwell course. Oh, wow. That's an interesting way to phrase it. Uh, he just decides, what would my life be if I lived like this for a month? And then he does it. Oh, neat. So, like, one, he, he tried, he spent a month trying to remove all the cognitive biases from his life, which meant he had to identify them all and make a list. Um, anyway, uh, but that's not rela- re- related to Kendall's, Kendall's question. Um, I think the only thing I can recommend there is, you know, you will, you will lose the mystique for some of these books, but you just have to go out there and find more, better books and um, try picking up a book that maybe you didn't like at first, but which a lot of people spoke very highly of and a lot of people is considered either like a modern classic or an old classic um, and see if read more closely, you can appreciate more why people like it. That's how I feel about a lot of like 20th century Japanese fiction, which seems like a really arbitrary thing to mention, but there are a lot of uh, really good books, like novels, that I have read in translation uh, yeah, that, you know, were written, you know, in around like the mid, you know, 20th century by, you know, these Japanese authors. And just like, it does sort of have this sort of, there's something about the storytelling that is very different from Western storytelling that like, especially when you're not reading it in like a foreign language and you're like seeing it in your own words, that I guess it makes it a little easier to analyze it. Um, and there are actually like a lot of books that like I, I really recommend uh, that people read, not because it's like, oh god, like this story is going to blow your mind, but just because of just how like elegantly written it is. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite novels that I don't know if I've ever mentioned it much on the podcast because we're always talking about David Mitchell and <laughs> and Kazuo Ishiguro um, is is a is a novel called Kokoro by uh, Natsume Soseki. Um, the name of the book it's K O K O R O. If you want to look it up, they usually don't translate the title because it's just hard to translate in context. But it's you know it's a very like simple sort of story about you know this young man you know who like becomes friends with you know this older you know gentleman who sort of like comes before like you know he, he he comes from an older time like quite literally like in terms of japanese history and just sort of like the relationship that they develop and just like you know the sort of story it tells is is like the the storytelling techniques are actually you know they're they're they're, they're nice and subtle and you know i read these specifically for courses where it's like we are going to analyze the way these were written and take into account the time in which it was written and why the author was, you know, doing this and, you know, the audience that he was specifically writing for. And so there was a lot of deconstruction on that, you know, like he talks about here, like, you know, you deconstruct it, like, does it lose the magic? And I think that if, you know, if, if you have the right mindset, I don't think it has to lose that. Yeah. 
I mean, I tend to agree on my own, for my own part. There's um, a sort of evidence by the fact that if I, if I'm looking at some of my own stuff, which I should, you know, I go through it over and over and over and over again, but some of the more uh, emotional passages that I write still affect me emotionally, like even after I've been through editing them, even as I'm sitting there trying to tweak the words just a little bit to get just a little bit more impact and all that, the emotions still affect me. It's yeah. not, it doesn't, I don't become distanced from it the more I mess around with the, the construction and syntax. So, I mean, I was just kind of going off of, Kendall's one of the people who does lose the mystique when he looks at it too closely, and that's, I mean, I understand that. So, I, I would say look up, um, look up some books that maybe you didn't like at first, but which other people liked a lot. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to learn from reading a book that does not appeal to you directly, but which is nonetheless either very popular or widely acclaimed. Yeah, can I make a couple more quick recommendations on that for my my 20th century Japanese writing. Sure. Thing? Uh, two other books that are both, I think, good to look at for this sort of thing. Uh, one of them is called uh, The Wild Geese by Mori Ogai. It's a very, very short book. I don't even know if it's technically a novel. It might even just be a novella. Uh, that's very good. And there's also uh, The Sound of the Mountain by Yasunari Kawabata, which is, uh, that one's about a, basically, like, you know, this, this elderly man... Like who's like in like his eighties and basically like yeah like everyone he used to know is dying. It's <laughs> just sort of like oh, okay and now like the world is sort of changing around me and leaving me behind. But uh, it's it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty good story. Cool. Those were those are that those two plus Kokoro are like the the three big ones out of all the stuff I've read from like what they call modern Japanese literature. But since Japanese literature has been going on for so much longer than American literature has, modern goes back to like the eighteen hundreds. But right, right. There you go. Cool. Uh, we get asked for book recommendations every now and then. Yeah, so if you're right, toss those out there. I had a post in my live journal uh, from December called Stuff to Read Over the Holidays. and has a bunch of book recommendations in it, uh, which I just forwarded to somebody. Um, I got a shout on my FA page from someone who just finished Cloud Atlas and loved it. So Yay. he wanted more recommendations. I'm like, yay, more people converted to David Mitchell. I think some of these people should really like give us shouts out. But yeah, the, the first one I mentioned there, Kokoro by Natsume Soseki, I think that's probably the book that I have given most frequently as a gift to people. I think I've given it to like three or four of my friends. Did I give you a copy? I don't believe so. Have I never given you a I should give you a copy. Well, no, don't tell me now. What? <laughs> now it won't be a surprise. I'll give it to you in like two years when you've forgotten. Okay. Or, <laughs> or after I've gotten real drunk and forgotten. Uh, that's, that's backwards. Dear possibly pantsed and nominally unsheathed hosts, in a few episodes you've talked about outlining, and it seems that both of you are discovery writers. You prefer to start in on a story with minimal written planning and see where it leads. While you don't disparage outlining, it does seem like you don't give it too much mention since it's less a part of your own writing processes. This is true. As far as I can tell, professional writers seem to be roughly split between outline and discovery techniques. Would you say that's the case, or there's a clear majority of one school? Uh, I'll pause the letter to yeah. answer that. Um, 
generally when unless you're in uh like a a kind of creative writing class but mostly when people yeah. talk about writing techniques they they don't divide people up into yeah this kind and that kind it's mostly just whatever you can do to get a novel yeah. out and if something's not working for you then there's other methods you can try but yeah but like they almost never even cover this when it's like hey how do you learn how to write better i mean it really is just so much of a personal style thing yeah like i don't think you can really teach it one way or the other it's just more like how does your brain work when you tell stories I, yeah and I've, I've heard from people who say i i can't do outlines because once i do an outline i know how the story comes out and then there's no fun in writing it for me. And I know people who say, I can't do discovery writing because I don't know what's going to happen, and it drives me crazy. So they have to do the outlines. Um, anyway, I don't I don't know what the percentages are. I, I, I would guess it's probably like pretty 50-50. If, I, ha if I had to guess, I'd say there's not really a strong leaning one way or the other. Yeah, that would be my impression. Um, but... Nicodemus, who is the author of the letter, says, Personally, I prefer to outline an entire work before beginning on the prose, though I will sometimes do free-writing pieces which are not part of the book to test out character voices as part of this planning, which is a great exercise, by the way. Yeah. In the manuscripts I've written, the ones that I completed and felt were strong were ones where I was working against an extensive outline, extensive being 150 to 250 points slash notes for a novel. For me, creating the outline at that level is similar to a first draft. I can move through each part of the book and visualize the scenes and characters, the transitions and transformations. That lends me confidence when I set out to write the text that I'm heading down fewer dead ends and sidetracks. The other major advantage I find is that an outline can easily be constructed non-linearly. You can add a new character development in one section, and then quickly go back to place foreshadowing and jump to the end to alter an interaction. Being able to weave elements in this way seems to fit well with how I conceive of this story. The outline can be very fluid as I work through the early stages. As discovery writers, is that just built into your editing passes? How do you like to track those loose ends while writing? Do you rewrite earlier parts as needed, or do you try to complete a full first draft before going back and adjusting? Your overplanning rat, Nicodemus, who um, adds as an asterisk to his possibly pantsed greeting, due to the Heisenberg uncertainty pantsable, it is impossible to know whether or not both hosts have their pants on simultaneously. Some physicists think this uncertainty does not apply to sweatpants, however, under the controversial drawstring theory. <laughs> People are laughing at that, Nicodemus. Yes. Says. And or shaking their heads. Yes. I was not among the latter. Um, I got a chuckle out of it. So, the whole planning, tracking down loose ends thing, that really comes in in an editing pass for me. Yeah, same here. It's um, I do, however... I go back and adjust for minor things, and occasionally, if I think, "Oh, it would be co it would have been cool if this guy had been set up to do this," I will go back in the manuscript, and if it's too big a change to completely write out, I'll write a little note saying, "You know, don't forget to add this in here." Yeah. So I do do a little bit of editing during the discovery writing first draft process, which is what I'm in right now. Yeah, I do a little of that. I try not to do it extensively because I like to try to just maintain forward momentum on my drafts because if I get in the habit of going back and changing things, I will just get stuck in a loop mm -hmm. of always wanting to do that. 
One of the things I did recently, I've talked about this uh, little werewolf novel I wrote, um, preparatory to sending it out to people, uh, a bunch of the places that you want to send these things require a synopsis. So I was writing a synopsis, and it occurred to me that writing the synopsis might be a good tool during an editing pass, because it's very similar to writing an outline, except you know, you've already written the text, but it's a very short, abbreviated way of showing you where, like if you're writing a paragraph for each scene or a couple sentences for each scene, and you're like, well, nothing important happens in this scene, so I don't have to put it in the synopsis. Then you're like, well, why is that scene in the book? Or if you're writing little summary sentences or paragraphs, and you think, wow, this whole bit kind of goes nowhere, then that might be something you need to focus your attention on when you go back and do your editing pass. Um, so, as I near the end of my first draft of the Collations book, or two books, whatever it ends up being, um, probably one of the things that, the, one of the first things I'll do um, when I sit down to edit is I'll try writing a synopsis of it, and I'll see where that takes me. Yeah, as far as outlines themselves, now that it's been almost a year and a half and I'm halfway through my third time through the story, I think I'm finally at a point where, ooh, I think I can write a, I can write an outline for the rest of what happens in Summerhill now. Yeah. <laughs> Which I might actually like end up doing later tonight is just sitting down because I pretty much know everything that's going to happen for the rest of the story, and I think that just writing that down in an outline form that I can follow, it's worked with me with longer works in the past, where, like, again, like, I'll be on my rewrite of a full draft, and I'll be about halfway through, and then, like, my brain's like, okay, like, I'm starting to get a visual image of what this all should look like, if all goes according to plan. So I think I'll I'll do that, and, because uh, that'll help me better examine what if any holes are still there and what else if anything I need to throw in in order to like spackle over that yeah normally I get about a third of the way into a discovery writing and then I have to write a kind of high level outline for the rest of the book just to keep myself give myself something to write towards um, with this collations thing first of all I think it might end up being two books but secondly um, I didn't really do that until I got near the end, and then I had about 20 scenes to go, or I realized I was getting towards the end, and I wanted to get everything sorted out in my head so I didn't lose track of stuff, because there's like four or five different little plot threads that I keep forgetting about. So I wrote down the last like 22 scenes, uh, and I have 13 left, and I've already changed what one of them was. I was like... This, hap- this is supposed to happen down here, but no, it makes more sense for it to happen up here, so I just wrote it that way. So I'm still kind yeah. of discovery writing, but with a more of a structure. There is at least one major plot point left with Summerhill that I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to resolve. And one of them's like, oh, but if I do it this way, it'll leave it really open-ended. And I'm like, no, I don't want to write another book in this series. <laughs> but I don't know. I might not have a choice in that. Hey, you know, you've got another three years. Well, it's all stuff that, like, has to do with Catherine, who didn't have, like, the fully fleshed-out backstory the first few times through. And now that she does have a fully fleshed-out backstory, there's, like, a bunch of stuff going on with her that I don't know, like, can get resolved in the course of telling, like, the rest of Summerhill's story. Maybe it doesn't. That bitch! (laughs) (laughs) 
Yay. Uh, High five. Yeah. But I, I will do my best to wrap it up satisfactorily. Oh, I'm sure you will. Yes. Um, so, I mean, in answer to your question, I think it's, that's just something that comes in during the editing. Yeah. Um, I, I like the comparison of the outline being like your first draft from a high level. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people who really need those signposts to write around or to write through as you're doing your draft. Or betwixt. Right. Um, my problem is, in order to... If I'm... I, I discover so much about the characters and the plot as I'm writing that I couldn't make an effective outline beforehand. I would have to think way too much about the story. And then, as I was writing, the ideas would all change anyway. So... Um, for me, it's I, I kind of I have this high level thing in mind where I knew where this was headed, and I'm writing towards that. And then there's usually one character who was not supposed to be part of the story, but who I started writing about, and he pushed himself in, which happened in this book too. Um, my uh, my Irish sorcerer, <laughs> yay! He's Irish, and it. Partly, I, I will admit, it's because I liked hearing all his dialogue in my head in an Irish accent. I'll have to read you that little... I, I wrote a little bit that it's a really cool thing he said, and then <laughs> I say it in the in the accent. And I don't have it here. He's he's Yeah, he's talking about why his family left Ireland. I think I mentioned... I mentioned that, didn't I? I mentioned something about the, the potato famine, how there were two potato famines. Yes. There's one in the 1740-40-41, and then there's one in the mid-1840s. So his was in the 1740s, and he went to London. And, of course, the animal people are talking to him about how difficult it must have been to... Like, well, it was difficult to be an animal person in London, and he was talking about how... Well, you know, it's no it's no great trick if you're Irish, neither. Um, but there were, there's more background in my novel than people really care to know about at this point. But at some point in the Collations history, the Church of England decreed that they are people with souls. And this was an actual like piece of paper that the, that they, the archbishop signed and said, this is a decree. Um, but so, anyway, he says... Well, you know, it might have been worse for the Irish. You've got a piece of paper saying you're a real person. The Irish got no such thing. <laughs> oh. But he's cool. Terrible things happen to him, but he's cool. <laughs> he might he might almost people are going to accuse me of like picking up things from you by the end of this book. Oh no. <laughs> Speaking of which, we have any New Zealand listeners? Ah. Uh. I know we have a couple we have a bunch of Australian We have a bunch of Australian listeners. Which we're still trying to we're still trying to push to get down there for Midford two thousand twelve. Oh, okay. December two thousand twelve. Unsheed live in Australia. Oh god. If you can fly me to Australia, go right ahead. I don't think they'll fly us down there, but if they'll give us like membership. No, I didn't hotel, mean Midford, I meant you. Well <laughs> We got some we got some freaking flower miles. We'll see how that goes. We're uh our, I can't even afford to fly to Atlanta next month. <laughs> well, we're flying to Atlanta on frequent flyer miles too. But our uh, yeah, our schedule next month is we're going to be in Furry in Dallas for Furry Fiesta. And then the next weekend we're going to be up in Seattle for Emerald City Comic Con. We're going to be down in San Francisco for FogCon. Then we're going to be out in Atlanta for FWA. 
then we're going to be back here for a weekend and then up in uh up in San Francisco again for WonderCon, is that right? Yeah. So five conventions in 6 weeks. Congratulations. <laughs> and then we're going to spend the month of April sleeping. <laughs> It'll be unsheathed with just me. <laughs> unsheathed with Cam Hirasaki and sleeping Kyle. <laughs> Kyle, how did you write your novels? Are you writing a sequel to Isolation Play? No, but I'm writing a third out of position book. I move on to the next email? Please do. Our next and final email? Yes. Hey again, Fox Otter and possible guest who does not exist. I had another question arise last... (laughs) I had another question (laughs) arise last night while talking with a fellow author. What advice can you give guys about stories... uh, What advice can you guys give about... Wow. It's like, just because we're gay doesn't mean we don't entertain female writers. And just because I said that horrible thing about, like, girl parts earlier doesn't mean I don't like women. I think that girls are very nice. I have a lot of very nice female friends. I have it on good authority that we do entertain female writers. Yeah. What advice can you guys give about stories where the main character is alone on screen for a vast majority of the story? And what would you suggest for somebody who likes to write most of his stories with conversations? Well, in that <laughs> don't case, have your main character y- alone. Yeah. There you go. Thanks again for the help, guys. Atari. Yeah, if that's if that's like your your two things, and one of those things needs to change. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's definitely there's definitely a fair amount of successful fiction that focuses just on a single character. Yeah. Um, I would say don't get too heavily introspective or monologue-y. Make sure you keep some action up. Yeah, but otherwise you're just lost in your character's head forever. Yeah, and like in being John Malkovich, and nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. No, no, no. Um, I will say that interactions with other people are one of the best ways to bring out character without necessarily having to um, tell people about it. Um, and and it's. I, I guess I would ask: Is there a point to having the main character alone on screen? Yeah, earlier drafts is of it Summer- just because you don't want to come up with side people. Yeah, like earlier drafts of Summerhill had him alone a lot more than he is now, uh, but also th- those weren't very good drafts, and I have since changed it so that he is with people more often now. So, um, and I guess. Yeah, we have our usual cop-out answer of read stories that have been published that follow this sort of theme. But, uh... Yeah, and I'm trying to... I know I've read plenty of stuff where it's, like, been, like, a single character alone for a big portion of it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of I can't which... think of any right now. Yeah, if we, if we think of something, we'll mention it. Um, and I'm trying to think of novels written mostly in conversation... I think you need some description in there to set the scene and break it up for people. Yeah, and you you need action to happen outside of people talking, even if it's like a political story. Yeah, where like a lot of that happens with that because like you have to ask yourself: Are you writing a lot of conversations because this is how the plot is unfolding, or because you just like to have the characters talk a lot? 
and it's very easy to sort of lose yourself in writing conversations and write a lot of filler dialogue. Yeah. And filler dialogue, once you start picking up on it, drives you crazy. You, I mean, it's it's all you can you can kind of pass it off as oh it's character building stuff, but it's not a lot yeah. of the time. And you're just like, why did you have that exchange? That exchange did nothing for the story. If you if actually if you want to see a, a humorous example of this, uh, if you go to uh, the Nostalgia Chicks uh, old movie reviews, she has one for Xanadu where she addresses this point heavily, because that movie is full of egregious filler dialogue. Oh, and she good. just takes scenes, and at a point she's just like, she's like speaking, she's like, dialogue, 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 dialogue. Like, she's like, seriously, like, you can cut 80% of this shit. Like, this is not <laughs> serving any purpose. And, you know, it's, it, you know it's, it's done for humorous effect, but it is, like, a good point, where it's like you have these big, long conversations. Like, the things that these characters are talking about have nothing to do with what's going on, and it's not revealing anything about character. It's not further serving anything other than that, like, whoever wrote that portion of the script was bored, you know? Like, I don't know. Now, by contrast, you take, like, a, a Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm which has a lot of dialogue that's not immediately relevant to the plot. And he likes to throw in his pop culture stuff. Right. But he throws it in judiciously. He makes it interesting. So, like, you know, the the famous bit about, you know... The Royale the quarter with pounder, cheese, yeah. The Royale with cheese, right? Um, it's... A lot of it is... Right, as Kit points out, a lot of it is status exchange between the two characters. And more importantly, it's memorable. It's unique. Yes. And he does not fill the movie with it. No. He uses it as an introduction to the characters, and then we get into the plot. And it pops up a little bit as accent, as flavor. It's kind of like salt. Mm-hmm. You don't want to fill your meal with salt. But a little bit here and there makes it brings out the flavor. Yeah, and like there are a few scenes like that, like in the Kill Bill movies, that also do that. Yeah, where again, like it's something like yeah, you know, you'll, you'll bring it up, but you know, the point of the Kill Bill movies is not to have these people hashing out you know awkward conversations with each other. Right. There's an actual you know personal revenge plot going on, and actually, my favorite bit from the Kill Bill movie like that is the um, the conversation that they have at the end, and I'm not spoiling anything, but where he talks about Clark Kent and Superman. Right. Um, so I'm not going to ruin it for anyone, but if you haven't watched the Kill Bill movies, you should watch them, and the Clark Kent-Superman conversation is actually really interesting. Also, I really liked uh, the bit where uh, Daryl Hannah's character is you know, reiterating, you know, a scene and like she is in the scene that she's talking about. And so like, she'll like say a line and then she'll narrate over like what she just said, <laughs> like to this sort of like self-indulgent, awkward effect, which I think is pretty funny. Oh but, yeah. Yeah. Now he does, he does great stuff actually. Um, and, uh, we're, I don't know if we have time to talk about it now, but we did all three of us see True Grit the other night. We did. And we recommend it. We do. And I've heard from more than one source that the book is actually quite good. So that Yeah. I didn't I don't think I realized it was a book. Yeah. Until so I may uh 
it may may go on my on my list, or maybe I'll buy it on my Kindle. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. Um, I hope but anyway, if you if you want to see like how you can actually just real quick, yeah, that is a good example of a story where a lot of what's going on is being done in conversations. Mm-hmm. The actual movement of the plot of True Grit is very basic and very simple, and pretty much all of the texture of the story comes from the conversations that people have along the way. Yeah, definitely. So does. if you haven't seen True Grit, it's still in theaters and probably will be for at least a little while longer till the Oscars. Yeah, so. Go check it out. Yep. And if you've read the book, write in and let us know what you thought. Yeah. We'll read your letter in a month and a half. <laughs> yeah. If your candle, only... include a blowjob comment. Yes. Wow, I don't really want to put any kind of blowjobs anywhere near that movie. No. 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 No, nobody. No, we're moving on. You're fired from my show, too. <laughs> but there's a pit of snakes. <laughs> and then the character falls into this dark pit and comes away not completely unscathed. All right. Oh, the Freudian implications of that. Remember, <laughs> sometimes a cigar is just a giant vagina in the desert that swallows men whole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unsheathed. Thank you for writing in. Our email address is unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you would like to follow me, I am Kyle Gold on Twitter. I am at kylegold.livejournal.com. And on FA, I'm just Kyle. And I'm just Cam Hirasaki and all of those things that Kyle just listed. And if you feel the urge to write and ask me if there's going to be another book in the Out of Position Isolation Play series, the answer is yes. And I don't have anything that people are asking me about. Well, that's because you haven't finished Summerhill yet. Once Summerhill's out, people are going to ask you if there's going to be a Catherine book. A whole a whole ton of people keep saying, like, I will buy Summerhill as soon as it comes out. And I'm like, I hope you're not joking, because I want this to have been worth something. Oh, it will be. Well, good night, everyone, and keep writing. We love you. <laughs>